We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, The New York Yankees Fans Bucket List, the publisher, Triumph Books, the author, Mark Feinsand. Please join me as we welcome Mark Feinsand to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate uh, it. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming. And just quickly, mainly for the podcast listeners, uh, Mark has covered the Yankees for 16 years for the New York Daily News and MLB.com. He appears regularly on multiple TV and radio outlets, including MLB Network, Yes Network, and The Fan. And tonight he's in the clubhouse. So uh, just to get us going, we usually start with this question, but if you could just let us know how this book project came to be. Well, it came to be when Triumph Books approached me, actually, uh, through my, my good friend and former colleague, Philip Bondi. Uh, somebody had reached out to him saying, we have this Yankee book we're looking to get written, and you know anybody who might be good for it? And I was the Yankee beat writer at the Daily News at the time, and Philip said, I got the perfect guy for you. So they had started this series uh, initially with Ohio State football and Kentucky basketball. Those are the first two bucket list books they did. They wanted to branch out to some of the bigger pro teams, um, and I believe the Cardinals, St. Louis Cardinals and the Yankees were their first two pro teams, I think. Uh, but they reached out to me about doing the Yankee book. It seemed like a fun idea. Uh, all they did was basically give me the idea and then say, go. And so I had to come up with uh, the table of contents and all of the things that were going to be in there that we were going to put on a Yankee fan's bucket list. Well, leading off the bucket list is uh, we are live in New York. Um, <laughs> I grew up here. I'm used to it. <laughs> uh, leading off the bucket list is, is Yankee Stadium, uh, which obviously makes sense. And I just want to ask you uh, your, your personal thoughts on this Yankee Stadium versus the old Yankee Stadium. Well, I mean, I think the idea of going to a Yankee game is what it is. You're going to see the team. Obviously, the stadium is part of it. Uh, it's not going to be the same as it was at the old place, just for the simple fact of you can't take your kid or go with your father and say, that's where you know, Joe DiMaggio played, or that's where Mickey Mantle played, or that's where uh, you know, fill-in-the-blank played. Uh, but you know when you walk into the new Yankee Stadium that you're in Yankee Stadium. It still looks like Yankee Stadium, uh, and most notably because the guys on the field are wearing the pinstripe jerseys, <laughs> and uh, you know, that's really what you're going to see more than anything, you know, for a couple years when the old stadium was closing, people may have been going to see the old stadium, um, but at the end of the day, you're there to see the, see the ball club. So, uh, yeah, the first chapter of the book's all about game day in the Bronx, um, you know, different things to do, whether it's going to opening day or old-timers day, um, sitting in the bleachers and doing the roll call with the bleacher creatures, uh, pre-gaming at Stan Sports Bar, the Yankee Tavern, uh, things like that. So it's, you know, Monument Park. Uh, so it's, it's sort of a guide of, uh, you know, on a random day at the stadium, here's some ideas. Here are some special days at the stadium that every Yankee fan should, uh, you know, should try to get to at some point, uh, you know, during their lives. Because, you know, old-timers day, opening day, playoff games, World Series games, those are, those are pretty fun nights or, or days. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I don't want to get you in trouble, but uh, did you grow up as a Yankee fan? I did, actually. My dad grew up about uh, two blocks from Yankee Stadium. He lived in Yogi Berra's building. And, uh, and was a huge Yankee fan his whole life, raised me, took me to my first game in, uh, I want to say it was May of 79. I went and looked it up on baseballreference.com. He, he had taken a picture of the scoreboard with you know, the old stadium with the lineups. So I was able to match up the, the starting lineups and the pitcher and figure it was against the A's. And I was able to find, find the actual game and look at the box score, which is pretty cool. It was a few months before Thurman Munson died. So got to see him play as a, a you know, four-year-old. Uh, but but I, I have pictures of it, and I remember being there. So, yeah, I was a Yankee fan right up until the day I started covering them, and then that was pretty much just beaten That's, out of me right away because yeah. yeah. you really can't cover a team and be a fan. It just doesn't work. You, you, you know, you, you used to live and die with every pitch and every game and the results and big loss or big win. You're all excited. Big loss, you're crushed. Well, my first year was 0-1, and I realized that it was beaten out of me when they lost game seven. And I was more concerned about what I was writing than the fact that the Yankees had just blown the World Series. So uh, it, was, uh, it was a quick transition from fan to writer. But uh, yes, I was a fan growing up. Actually, just uh, a question that relates to that answer. We, you and I were chatting a little bit before that I used to be a sports agent. And 
when I was a sports agent, a fandom basically got knocked out of me. Uh, over time, I just I started to lose my passion for the actual games. It, it wore me down. And I don't mean by it for a team, but just the, the sport in general. Uh, I take it you, you did not have that part of it. No, I don't think you can be a baseball writer and if you don't love the game, because you go to too many damn games to hate what you're doing, you know? I mean, I've been covering 130 games, regular season games a year, plus 25 or 30 in spring training, plus the postseason, so you're probably talking about 150, 160, maybe 170 games a year, all told, it's a lot of hours at the ballpark if you don't like the game. So, uh, you know, I, I, I had the fandom of a team kind of stripped away, but I think you have to like the game or love the game to be able to spend that many hours watching it and reporting about it and writing about it. I think if you don't like the game, you can probably, that probably shows up in your writing right. at some point. And what just, uh, I, th I think a lot of, uh, even diehard fans probably don't know this. So if you wouldn't mind, just take us through like what a typical sports writer's day is when you're at the, at the ballpark. Like, what time do you get there for a night game? I was going to say, most happens? people think for a 7 o'clock game, like, oh, so when do you get there, about 5.30? No, I've already been there for, you know, three hours at that point. Right. Uh, I would usually get to the ballpark around 2.30 for a 7 o'clock game, uh, spend about 45 minutes to an hour just reading up on the day's news, checking whatever papers online that I hadn't already read that day or, you know, seeing if there's any new news, maybe looking at some stats to try to think of a storyline for that night or, or pregame. You know, when you write for a newspaper, which I did for 10 years, you have to write early stories that day that are going to get into the first edition before the game's even played. So you got to come up with something. Whether there's news or not, you have to fill that space. So a lot of that first hour was spent just trying to figure out, what am I going to go to the clubhouse to, what do I want to accomplish when I get to the clubhouse? Clubhouse opens uh, these days at Yankee Stadium about 3.20. Spend an hour down there talking to players. Girardi does his pregame. So this is about an hour of interviews and, and that kind of thing. Go out for batting practice for a little bit. If you have any business to do out there, sometimes just go up to the press box, start writing your early stuff. Got to get that stuff done by game time. Try to sneak dinner in somewhere, watch the game. And like I said, you're, you're, you're writing throughout the game. I have to have a game story filed by, you know, the ninth inning, basically. Uh, if not the last pitch, if the game's decided, they may want it in the eighth. So you're, you're busy throughout the whole game. It ends, you go down, do some interviews, talk to the manager, go back upstairs. Do your best to hit your deadline, and uh, once you file your stuff for deadline, you get in your car and go home. Do it again but it's a long day. Time. It's, it's yeah. I mean, a, a day at the ballpark covering a night game or really any game is probably about a ten-hour, a ten-hour day for a three-hour game. Yeah. No, I, 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 I just wanted you to talk about that because I think a lot of people don't realize the, the, the life of a sports writer. <laughs> yeah. Um, As somebody said, you keep baseball player hours, but don't get paid. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, old time pass. Actually, we're yeah. at the ballpark much longer than the players yeah. are, so we actually keep longer than baseball yeah. player hours. <laughs> and I don't, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm not going to go through a lot of the things in the bucket list because I want people to read the book, but one of the other areas I want to touch on is you, uh, you talk about catching the Yankees on the road. Not, it's not all about just going to the Bronx, sure. so you can also go catch the Yankees on the road. Just personally, and obviously... I mean, now there's interleague play, but most of it is, is the ballparks. Most of your experience is going to be from the American League. Sure. Is there one particular ballpark that for you stands out from, from your perspective? Well, my two favorite ballparks are uh, Safeco Field in Seattle and Target Field in Minneapolis. Just, I just think they're both beautiful ballparks, really nice experience to watch a game, um, good concessions, good sight lines everywhere uh, from my vantage point great press facilities um and you know they're both downtown so for people who are going to a game there there's plenty to do before and after uh for a yankee fan if you've never been i think camden yards has got to be the top one on your list ballpark's incredible right down in the inner harbor plenty to do uh another thing that i that i wrote about in the book is the babe ruth birthplace museum which is right you know a hop skip and a jump from camden yards great great little facility uh, I really enjoyed my visit down there. I took my kids there to see it. And uh, it's, it's I, I describe the Babe Ruth Museum as if there was just a big Babe Ruth Museum uh, exhibit in Cooperstown, this is it. And it's all, you know, there's some other non-Babe stuff in there, but it's really interesting to learn about his life. There's a lot of memorabilia in there. 
uh, a lot of information there, and it's just a very nice, quaint little museum. So Baltimore, given its proximity to New York, and also, quite frankly, you go to Fenway and you put on your Yankee hat and you're going to get people cursing at you and you're going to get people screaming at you and, you know, you might not get into a fight, but you might get into a fight. <laughs> Baltimore, you go down there for a Yankees-Orioles game, you're the majority. There's more Yankee fans there than Orioles fans when, when the Yankees are in Baltimore. So even though you're on the road, it kind of feels like a home game. So I like to refer to it as Yankee Stadium South. So it's a comfortable place for a Yankee fan to go to a game for sure. Right. And another area of this book, another chapter, you, you get into uh, some other things not in a ballpark. And, or, I mean, you've mentioned the museum, but th things kind of away from it. And you mentioned some things that people can view. And one of the things you mentioned was uh, the documentary Nine Innings from Ground Zero. Uh, coincidentally, Weezy Shapiro, who wrote that documentary, she was here last week with a uh, little plug, uh, one Nation Under Baseball, she wrote it with John Florio, terrific book. Uh, we do have a couple of those signed copies, <laughs> by the way. Uh, so you started uh, covering the team in 2001. I think everybody is familiar with what happened in, uh, you know, going from nine innings from ground zero, we know what happened in 2001. If you could just talk a little bit about, well, for one, how did you start to cover the Yankees? Uh, where did that come from? And then maybe just take us through what it was like through your eyes. Well, I started covering the Yankees in 2001. I got out of Boston University in 96. Uh, I worked at the Sports Business Daily for a couple of years. I worked at FoxSports.com for a couple of years. Uh, and a friend of mine told me that had, had gone from Fox to MLB.com uh, and told me they were how they were forming the company and they were going to have beat writers for every team. And they're looking for somebody for the Yankees and somebody for the Mets. And I gave them your name and uh, they want you to come in for an interview. So I came in and I'd never been on a beat before. I'd never done anything like that before. I didn't really know that I was qualified for it, but I figured I'll go in and talk to them and see if I can fake my way into a job here. Uh, and I did, and it was <laughs> wonderful. Um, and I, you know, my first year on the beat, I get there and it's Buster Olney and George King and Dave Lennon and Ken Davidoff and all these guys who, I, Anthony McCarron, guys I had been reading for a long time and I'm going, wait, I have to compete with these guys? This is, I'm gonna get slaughtered here. And in the first year I got slaughtered. And, uh, but it was a great learning experience and uh, year one was a little rocky. Year two got better, and as it went on, all of a sudden I was on the beat for 16 years. Uh, I was at MLB.com for the first six, and then 10 of the Daily News, and now, of course, I'm back in MLB.com right. in a national role. So um, it, was a, it was a great learning experience to get on the Yankee beat. Uh, that first year was very interesting before 9-11. Obviously, 9-11 turned the whole season and most of our lives in a whole other direction. Uh, I won't bore you with the details, but it was a very... Uh, personal day for me. My mother and my stepfather were both down there. They both got out, thankfully, uh, but I didn't hear from them for several hours. And so as we're sort of figuring out how baseball fits into this, I couldn't have cared less. I was obviously much more concerned with my family's situation. Um, they lost, you know, they lost a lot of friends. And so it was, it was a very personal, for everybody who lived in New York, it was very personal, but anybody who was directly or even one step removed directly affected uh, it was it was crazy. We went back on the road for the playoffs, and every time that we'd get to a city, you know, you get into a cab, and the cab driver says to you, "So where are you coming from?" You say, "New York." And I remember these cab drivers, "Oh, that 9/11, what a thing!" And I'm like, "Don't talk to me. Like this is not that's not what you say to somebody who's from New York right now." But watching the Yankees that fall and the impact that they had on people in the city, and they go into this in great detail in the, in the documentary, which right. if you haven't seen it, it's phenomenal. Right. Um, seeing the impact that, you know, because I went down to a couple of events to cover, uh, you know, the Yankees going to this, this center or that armory, wherever it may be, and just seeing the impact that, you know, people whose lives have literally been turned upside down, and, you know, they see Derek Jeter and Bernie Williams and Joe Torre, and even if it's just for a minute, brought a smile to their face, which they hadn't had on their face in four weeks or whatever it may have been. So just seeing the impact that the Yankees had personally on people, and then as they made this incredible playoff run, uh, you know, they go down 0-2 to Oakland, and then they go out to Oakland, and you're thinking, well, they're going to get swept. They've won three World Series in a row, but right now it doesn't really matter. And then you have the Jeter flip play, and you have them coming back and, um, you know, coming back against Oakland and then going out and beating Seattle and, and all of a sudden, you can feel the momentum of sort of America for the first time, maybe ever, 
rooting for the Yankees. And it was, uh, it was a very cool thing to be a, a part of, to cover this run that they were on. Obviously, it ended badly for them with Game 7 in Arizona, but it almost didn't matter. It had, right. been, it had been a month of uh, just giving the people of New York something to distract them with. And uh, I remember the, you know, the, the, the President Bush first pitch, obviously, was a huge moment. And I remember that day, took us forever to get in the ballpark because Secret right. Service and the whole thing. That year, I had a an office in the basement of the old Yankee Stadium. Tony, you know where I'm talking about, where they had the, the MSG studio was here, and my office was right next to it. Well, they used the MSG studio, because MSG wasn't broadcasting that day, because it was national. They used the MSG studio as the staging area for the president. So I go in the other way to get into my office, and there's a Secret Service guy standing in front of my door. <laughs> and he said, you can't come in here. I said, it's my office. He said, that's great. You can't come in here. <laughs> and I was like, um, well, how do I get in my office? He's like, he's like, when the president leaves, you can get in. And I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> that makes sense. I'll go up to the press box. And I wasn't going to argue with him anymore once I realized that he was Secret Service. But uh, you know, that being in the ballpark when, when President Bush threw out that first pitch was, was electric. and. Um, it was it was it was a really uh, interesting, emotional, and, and memorable month to be, uh, let alone in my first year on the beat, but just to be a part of that whole thing was was pretty pretty crazy. He said, "Don't bounce it; they'll boo you." And he was right; they would have. And the president got up there and threw a perfect strike. And uh, uh, you know, I actually spoke to one of the one of the women who was interviewed in the documentary, Stacey Gutsulius. Uh, she was just a, a, just a Yankee, a big Yankee right. fan, and she was in the documentary a lot, and I've met her before, and so I talked to her for the book, and she gave me some good insight on, you know, sort of the documentary itself and how that came about, and uh, it was, it's, if you, like I said, if you haven't seen it, go, it's on, I think it's on YouTube or something. It's, it's, a, it's a great documentary. Yeah, for uh, any, bu any bucket list, I, uh, people should watch that. Yeah. It's really we have some more lighthearted stuff in there too, like watching yeah. the Yankees on Seinfeld or Saturday Night Live. Yeah, yeah, exactly. so, you know, let's, yeah. uh, if you don't want to go, you know, relive 9/11 and, and the Yankees' impact on the city, you can go watch Derek Jeter on Saturday Night Live. That was pretty <laughs> funny too. So. Uh, yeah, well, thank you for taking us through that. I, I didn't realize the, the, the personal nature of where that was going to go. But no, so that's th okay. Thanks for taking. Like me. I said, thankfully they got out, so uh, you know, a little easier to talk about it. Yeah. As you know, on a personal level, there wasn't. Uh, the situation that could have been, but obviously, as a New Yorker, it was, I'm sure, a lot of people here, it was a, a very, very tough and emotional time. Yeah, no, it's true, and when you said, uh, at that point, most of the country was actually rooting for the Yankees, which was rare, and the people, a lot of people would say, we are, you know, we were all New Yorkers. Uh, that lasted for like uh, six months or something. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I'm not even sure it was yeah, that long. Yeah, exactly. I think once the World Series ended, they were like, eh, maybe we'll give it till New Year's, so that's about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, I don't remember. In 2002, when the Yankees played the Angels, I don't remember a lot of Yankee fans in California. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's for sure. Uh, well, I, I now want to just turn it over. I have more questions, but uh, does anyone want to lead off from our intelligent uh, crowd? Anyone want to, besides Tony, with, uh, or you could ask another one, Tony. Well, the impact that uh, uh, New York had on, and the game of baseball had on the country being the national pastime and everything, and all through any conflicts and wars, there was always baseball and the Greenway with uh, Kensal Mountain Landis and, and, and uh, FDR and World War II and what went on in the aftermath and how uh, the country really uh, came around and saw that, hey, they're still out there playing. And, and what you said about the president, when he walked out there in front of, oh, we had over 60,000 people in the house at that time, and to think that, wow, there's got to be a lunatic in here that wants to do something stupid but there was so much security and everything, but it showed something to the country that baseball was there for them. And it was a great thing. By the way, that, uh, I don't know if you, if you want to mention, but for those listening, uh, the, uh, Tony Morante, who's, who's uh, you spoke, you He's quoted my book, book. absolutely. So, great um, historian from the New York Yankees, and if you've ever had Tony's tour of Yankee Stadium, you learned a lot about the stadium, that's for sure. Thank you. While we're there, um, having been there myself, and I know it was a losing cause, but besides those three games at Yankee Stadium, the comebacks, and the, I mean, even though we lost the series, I still say those are the, as a set of three, those are the three most amazing 
Yankee games in my life, in my history. Does it hold like that for you, or what would you put up there as three in a row? Or? Certainly as three in a row, it's hard to imagine anything coming close to that. I mean, game three, the game itself wasn't so memorable. I mean, the Yankees won. It was a close game. Clemens pitched well. But just the, the aspect of the president throwing out the first pitch, what happened in the game after that almost didn't matter. Uh, and then obviously the way that games four and five went down, uh, that was that was as as crazy a uh, you know development, let alone on back to back nights. Right. Uh, I, it'd be hard for me to think of three in a row that would match that for sure. Can you walk through what it was like being in Arizona then for Game Seven? Like I can't remember if it was the ninth inning, or I guess it would have been the tenth inning. Like basically the meltdown. It was the ninth. It was. Uh, you know, it was funny. I was sitting out in the center. There was an auxiliary press box in center field. So I was watching it from out there. And Alfonso Soriano hits a home run to put the Yankees ahead. I'm thinking, wow, they're about to win their fourth straight World Series. This is sort of insane that I'm here covering it because I was only a year removed from being a fan of this team. And all of a sudden, I'm like, this is sort of surreal. Uh, and when the ninth inning, after the eighth, I actually went downstairs because, the I don't know, I've ever been covering a World Series game. There's a lot of media there. Everybody's trying to get into the locker room afterwards. And when the winning team is on the road, they don't usually do the ceremony on the field. They do it in the clubhouse. So visiting clubhouses don't tend to be very big. So you're looking at a lot of people with a stage and the cameras and the whole setup and not very much space. So you want to get that. So I was online waiting to get in the clubhouse and we were watching the bottom of the ninth on this little tiny TV. So I watched the ninth inning of this most famous game ever <laughs> on this little tiny, I mean, it was probably honestly like a, like a 15 inch TV. And we're all sort of crowded around watching this TV and that, what, what just happened? He, he throw the ball away, what, what, what's going on? And we're all, you know, it's like a game of telephone where you're, you know, this happened. And you're telling the guy way back at the end of the line, what happened? And I, all I remember was that some people from MLB had started to set up the stage for the ceremony in the Yankee clubhouse. When Arizona tied the game, you saw the clubhouse door swing open and pieces of wood from the set just flying out of the clubhouse. And apparently what I had later been told was Steinbrenner went nuts that they had set up a clubhouse and thought they jinxed the team and ordered them to get the stage and all that stuff the hell out of the clubhouse right now. And so literally just things flying out of the clubhouse. And while that's going on, Mariano gives up the hit to Luis Gonzalez. We hear the roar of the crowd outside. We're trying to figure out what's going on because we've got a 15 inch TV. And all of a sudden I went from writing, Alfonso Soriano continues the dynasty. Paul O'Neill goes out a winner and the Yankees dynasty continues to Paul O'Neill goes out a loser. The great Mariano blows it. And, uh, you know, Alfonso Soriano, what could have been. And it was, you know, um, it was, again, that's the day that I realized the fandom was done because I was much more concerned with what I had to write than I was with, with the fact that the Yankees had just lost the World Series. Yeah, I'm just wondering, uh, in writing the book, you know, you're a big baseball fan, you cover the Yankees. Was there, could you share any like little tidbit that you found interesting that maybe you didn't even realize that when you were writing the book? Well, you know, I enjoyed talking to people about events that I, it wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, look, we all know Reggie Jackson had three home runs in the World Series, right? So talking to Reggie, I'm like, I don't want to hear the same thing that I've always heard. So he was telling me about like batting practice conversations he was having with sports writers and apparently he had this great BP where he was just killing the ball and he was walking by Dick Young and a couple other old sports writers and said, I hope I didn't leave it all out there. And little things like that, people were remembering moments from some of these you know, legendary uh, games and times that I either hadn't heard or you know, those were the things that I really found most interesting. You know, talking to David Wells and David Cohen about their perfect games and um, you know, Bucky Dent telling me that he didn't realize after he hit the home run against the Red Sox how big of a deal it was. And it took... He said a friend of his was a producer on 60 Minutes, told him like a week later, you realize that home run is going to change your life? And Bucky was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> he said, I'm telling you, this is going to, and he said, you're crazy. And obviously he wasn't crazy. So, you know, certainly some events that I talk to people about that are years removed now, hearing their recollections on some of those events now 
uh, was interesting. You know, I really enjoyed talking in the chapter where I talk about things you can do sort of away from stadiums and such, uh, uh, where we have nine days of ground zero and Saturday Night Live and Seinfeld. I really enjoyed talking to Bernie Williams about his music career right. um, and about, you know, sort of this second career that he's made for himself um, and, and how passionate he is about it. Uh, he also talked to me about being on Seinfeld, which was entertaining. Um, but, you know, I talked to Billy Crystal about 61 for a while and, and hearing about sort of how that process was. So, you know, being able to not just talk about these famous moments, but other Yankee-related things, uh, I found those, those, those were interesting because I was actually, you know, learning things that I hadn't necessarily known about. You know, I saw 61, but I never had a chance to talk to the guy who created it before. So. Uh, growing up a Yankee fan and being all part of that as a kid, which I guess all of us how, how do you write that out from your professional life? I mean, you can't sort of eliminate it entirely. You lived it as a kid. Every day was important. How do you change that? How do you just write that out? It's not right away. It doesn't happen immediately. You know, the first time in 2001, the first time I went down to spring training, they sent me down there for about 10 days. I walked into the Yankee clubhouse and... Uh, walk in there and I have a credential on and there to do work and all of a sudden I'm like hey that's Derek Jeter and that's Joe Torre <laughs> you know the PR guy brought me in to meet introduce me to Joe Torre and I'm like hi Joe how are you and I, I didn't know what to do with myself I'm like four months ago I was you know at Yankee Stadium with a you know the last game I attended as a fan uh, was the Clemens Piazza bat toss game uh -huh. um, and so and I had tickets for game six and seven of the World Series and game five, I was rooting for the Mets because I wanted to be there when the Yankees won the World Series. I had never been there for a clincher. And I said, oh, if they lose game five, they're not going to lose six and seven at home. I have tickets that I want to go. And of course, they won in five, and then my tickets are still sitting in my drawer. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't happen right away. But eventually, like I said, you, uh, you know, you just start realizing that you're on deadline and you have a job to do. And you have a, you know, if you don't do your job, you're going to get fired. And, Pay my bills and that kind of thing. So, so no emotional connection to the team at all. No, I really, you know, I think you you wind up rooting for guys more than the team. Uh, there are certain guys you cover who you develop relationships with, you become friendly with. I won't say you're necessarily friends, but you're friendly. Um, you know, there's a professional relationship there. Uh, there's also some aspect. I know people have used this analogy before of once you see how the sausage is made, you don't really want to eat the sausage. Um, once you've seen sort of the inner workings of baseball, it's, you know, you look at it a little differently. Um, but I think more than anything, as a writer, you don't care who wins, you're rooting for a good story. Uh, you know, Arizona, that World Series was a great story. And, you know, a Yankee fan doesn't want to hear that. But being there for that kind of, a, you know, in 2003, watching Aaron Boone hit that home run was a great story. 2004, watching the Yankees blow that lead, 3-0 lead, to the Red Sox was a great story. People don't want to hear that if you're a Yankee fan, but it was a great story. And so I think, you know, as a writer, you, you really root for something interesting to write. I'd much rather always write about a 2-1 game than an 8-0 game, whereas a fan would be much happier watching their team win 8-0. <laughs> we were talking about a great story, and I know this isn't good for Yankees fans like us, but like the Josh Beckett game. Game six, when everything's on the line. As a writer, how are you writing that when you see something like this young guy just mowing Yankee after Yankee down? I mean, you you write it like you see it. So you know, this this guy had his you know career breakout defining performance in Yankee Stadium against the Yankees, against a team that had been in the World Series you know six times over the previous eight years, and uh, you know you write it as you see it. That World Series was a strange one. Uh, that was the second one I covered. And just from the minute that Wells didn't come back out and, and you know, the, the home run and the, went over the, you know, three-foot wall in left field. And, uh, it was a strange World Series. Beckett obviously was, was incredible that night. Uh, you didn't realize at the time that he was going to go on to star for the Red Sox, which added a whole other level to it. But, you know, pretty much just the whole, you know, every game we've ever covered, you go into it not with a blank slate because you have history and you've got, you know, some storylines in mind, but... You know, you watch what develops on the field, and you know, what people always say, you go to the ballpark, you're probably going to see something you've never seen before. And in a lot of cases, that's true. So you're right about it. As someone whose childhood is at Yankee Stadium, I appreciate what you said, and I realize I miss it, but life goes on. 
The one thing about the new Yankee Stadium that drives me crazy, and I heard that in people say it's Monument Park. Mm. I've described it as a snack. And you sit there and you look out there, it just looks so terrible. And it's such a great history and so many wonderful people. Why do they do that? Or is it, or am I a minority in saying that? It's just so crowded. I've got this netting over it, so you're sitting there looking out at Monument Park. It just doesn't make it. I don't know what went into the building of it. I can't speak to the architecture of it. Uh, maybe my Tony can. I don't know. But when they retired, Jesus' number is going to be on the back of the wall, so you won't even see it. Well, they have all the retired numbers out in the outfield wall. Right, those. But anyway, saying, you know, it just looks so congested and so ugly during the game with the netting over it, hanging over it. There's nothing special about it. It's such a great history. It should be something that they glory in. <laughs> Tony's speechless. I don't know what improvements could be made. Maybe you have a suggestion. I think the one thing, you, you know, from, from watching in the seats, it's certainly not as visible as it used to be. And I think that uh, that's a shame to some extent, just because it is such a, a great piece of their history. And, you know, you used to be able to sit there and you'd see the numbers through the glass and, and you'd see the monuments and... You know, I, I can't speak to architecture myself in terms of what went into the decision to to put it where they put it or to do it the way they did it. Um, but, you know, it is still open to the public, so you can still go down there to check out the monuments and the plaques yourself, which is obviously one of the things I have in the book because, uh, you know, if you've never been to Yankee Stadium or if you've never been up close to see those plaques and those monuments, they're, they're, they're pretty special to see no matter where they are. Do you like the old stadium as opposed to the new one? Well, I like a lot about the new one because it's so convenient to walk around it. Uh -huh. you know, to go out right. in the outfield and come around. Like, we go to games on Sundays. We have season tickets on Sundays. Mm -hmm. My daughter, my son, and I, we leave our seats about the seventh inning, go downstairs and walk around, end up watching the game behind home plate. Yeah. That's a nice experience. And going out to the outfield, and we, they have standing room out in the outfield now that they didn't have in the past. It's nice. So a lot of that I like. Right. It's just that it just looks like such a Tony, you're a, you're, you're, you'd be a good politician. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Bob, did you have a question? Yeah, um, all the time that you were covering the Yankees, is there any one player or one particular incident that will resonate with you from years, from your experience? Well, I think players, like I said before, you develop relationships with certain guys. So there are certain guys who I obviously will always have a fondness for. Uh, that that I got to cover and got to know on a personal level, uh, who I really enjoyed. And, you know, as a writer, you spend a lot of hours in the clubhouse. On the road, there's even more hours in the clubhouse. And you're around these guys from the first day of spring training to the last day of the season, and you get to know them, and you talk about your families and that kind of thing. So there, on a personal level, there are certainly plenty of guys who I've gotten to know who I will always have a fondness for. Sweeney Murdy from WFAN, who I've known for 22 years, and... Um, you know, I was on the beat. We started the same year, so he's one of my closest friends in the business. We always talked about the fact that 20 years from now, uh, when Derek Jeter has essentially become Joe DiMaggio, where he's you know the, the the living legend and the guy who shows up at Yankee Stadium and it's you know the world stops. When we see him, he's gonna come over and say hello. We know you know I got to watch, I got to cover 14 of his 20 years, I believe, and had a good relationship with Derek. Uh, you know, and the fact that you got to watch 75% of his Hall of Fame career and be around for so many great moments of it uh, and be able to experience, you know, a one-on-one -on -one relationship with him in terms of, you know, we'd sit there and talk about, you know, he met my kids or, or uh, talking about that weekend's college football game or he was a big American Idol guy, whatever it may have been, uh, just that I had the opportunity to get to know him and the place that he has in baseball history 
I think looking back, having been able to be around so much of his career and Mariano's career, uh, and just knowing how special and important the two of them in particular are to the history of the game and will be forever to the history of the game, I think being able to watch those two careers, the majorities of them will probably stand out to me above everything else. Any other questions from the crowd? I think that's probably a factor. Uh, I, I thought with Tino, with O'Neill, uh, with some of the guys from the 96 team that you could have just as easily put a plaque out there for that 96 to 2000 group because you knew that you were going to have Joe Torre, Derek Jeter, Mariano, Pettit, Posada, Bernie. That team's well represented out there. And if you wanted to put something out there for the guys who were on all four of those teams, because there aren't that many guys who were on all four, Tino, O'Neill, uh, you know, David Cohn. You could have put something out there for the guys who were part of that team, who were part of all four championship teams, but maybe aren't in the same class in terms of Jeter, Rivera, Pettit, Posada. Um, but I don't really have a problem with it. These are celebrated people in this team's history. Willie Randolph was a captain. Uh, you know, he was, he was a great Yankee. Tino... Look, Tino played the same number of years as Reggie Jackson. So the bar was set a long time ago of Reggie played five years in the Bronx and his number's retired out there. So, um, you know, some people look at, at Reggie's number and say, well, why is that out there? He was there for five years. Uh, and, and he was a great Yankee for those five years and, you know, played a huge role in winning two World Series and had the Mr. October Dight. And, uh, you know, so I think it's, it's a great argument. It's a great bar stool argument. Uh, one of the things I, I wrote in the book is, you know, go talk about your Yankees, argue your Yankees Mount Rushmore. Uh, most people think it's an open and shut case. Here are your four. But then you start talking to other people. Tony, I know you and Brian, Richard said yours are different than what most people say. So, uh, you know, I think most people say, well, it's, it's Ruth and Gehrig and Mantle and DiMaggio, and that's it. Uh, but, you know, Yogi Berra won, you know, Yogi Berra won 10 rings. And, uh, uh, you know, Whitey Ford and Jeter and Rivera, there, there are a lot of guys you could argue for. So uh, I think those kinds of arguments, whose number should be retired, all that. I mean, personally, I love Paul Neal. He's a great guy. I enjoyed covering him. I've enjoyed getting to know him. The fact that number 21 is still out of circulation is ridiculous. Uh, you know, they're not going to retire it. Let somebody else wear the damn number. Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> you don't want it to be Latroy Hawkins, that's fine. But let one of these kids, let one of these kids who's coming up, you know, let Gary Sanchez wear 21 or, or Aaron Joel Judge. 99 is perfect for Judge. But, uh, you know, maybe Gleyber Torres ends up wearing it. Who, who knows? But, uh, you know, if you're not going to retire it, put it back out there because otherwise you may as well retire it. Yeah, you know, it just got me thinking about the number That, that one's easy. He decided to go to the Hall of Fame as a Padre. That was it. That was it. They were planning That was it. He, uh, that, the, that year, his, his, the year he was going to go to the Hall of Fame, the, the media guy had a big page of, of Winfield, and there was, they had a Winfield day set up. And I, I mean, I'm pretty sure 31 was going to be retired. Nobody's ever said it out loud. But uh, once he did, back then, you could still, as a player, decide what cap you want around your plaque. I think once he decided he wanted to, because I think he took a job at the Padres, if I'm not mistaken. Once he went in as a Padre, uh, I think the Yankees said, all right, well, Steve Carse, here's number 31. <laughs> and that was the end of that. So, uh, Aaron Hicks. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think they had their day for him, and uh, I don't think 31's getting retired. Um, I don't know. I, you know, it's funny. Dave Winfield was in that awkward era of the Yankees where they never won a championship with him. He wasn't quite as popular as Mattingly. He wasn't, you know... He was sort of that, you know. Well, you were also, Steinbrenner was really sort of almost inappropriately rude with him and how he interacted with Winfield. You know, like, yeah, I mean, he's got some awkward, he's got some awkward, <laughs> awkward history yeah. with the team as well. So, yeah, I don't, I think, I think if they were going to retire his number, it would have been done already. I don't. Uh, I think after Jeter's number gets retired next month, I think the retired numbers are done for a while. Yeah. I think you know they've they've retired everybody they're going to retire from that Tory dynasty. 
uh, you know, you've got what, six of those guys out there already, and, and I just think, uh, you know, unless unless Gary Sanchez, Aaron Judge, or Greg Bird end up yeah. with the careers that they're hoping that they end up with, uh, I don't think you see another retired number in the Bronx for a while. No, not it. <laughs> Manny Machado will be wearing that in two years. <laughs> yeah, right. Was it also the same thing in 85? Because I think Mattingly and Winfield were fighting for the batting title. I don't know. It was 84. 84, my mistake. Um, just like them going back and forth. Just the rivalry between the two. Because, again, Winfield had been known as Mr. May by Steinbrenner, and Mattingly was the consummate Yankee. Um, so even the rivalry there, did you even delve into that? or delve I didn't. You know, the one problem with writing a book like this about an organization like this is you only have so many pages. And uh, so a lot of it was, who could I get? But honestly, who was I going to be able to talk to? Um, and, you know, sort of what are the great moments I wanted to focus on? And uh, I didn't get into that. I mean, obviously, Mattingly is mentioned prominently throughout the book uh, and retired numbers and, and, and different you know, captains and stuff like that. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't delve into that specific race just because you, you had to pick your battles at some point. No other questions from the crowd. The, uh, do you mind if we get it, since uh, we have a, a lot of great, we've had about 150 writers here over time in seven years, of some tremendous Pulitzer Prize winners and I mean, f fantastic writers. We don't often, though, get a current uh, baseball writer who happens to write a baseball book at that time. So uh, do you mind if we get into a few things just about baseball? Not at all. Okay. As long as I can answer them. Uh, oh, you can answer them. I'll try. Uh, so, I'm going to throw this out to, to the audience, too, but just in general with baseball, uh, well, first, it still relates to the Yankees, but not about the bucket list. Uh, are you at all surprised by this? I know it's a long season. People forget how long a 162-game season is, but are you at all surprised by how the Yankees have started this season? Well, I'm only surprised that they've started the way they have based on some things that have happened. If you had told me that Greg Bird would have one hit in the first eight or nine games, that Gary Sanchez would be on the DL, um, that Tanaka would have had two bad starts to open the season, I would have said, well, this isn't going to go well. Uh, the fact that all of those things happened and they've still gotten off to this 10-4 uh, you know, start is, is pretty impressive. They're not 10-5, right? They lost the other night. Oh, they lost the other night, Tony. Come on, don't, don't bulk up the record here, Tony. Uh, they were 1-4. They lost the losing streak. They got at least five losses. Regardless, the fact that they're off to this start uh, with all of those things going wrong, I think it's got to be encouraging because Gary Sanchez is going to be back and Greg Bird's not going to you know, hit 111 all year um, and Tanaka's not going to have 70 RA. So uh, the fact that Chase Headley and Ellsbury and Gardner are off to good, solid starts and Sterling Castro, they don't even have Gregorius right now. So uh, I think there's certainly some reason for optimism. You know, is Michael Pineda going to continue pitching the way he's pitching? Is CeCe Sabathia going to continue to pitch the way he's pitching, those things have to happen as well. Uh, but I think you know the Yankees had a good feeling about at least being a contending team this year. And certainly, what we've seen to this point, there's no reason to think that once some of those other things you know start to click as well, that they should be able to continue playing you know pretty good baseball. Now, moving away from the Yankees, just to ge baseball in general, uh, and I definitely I don't want you to feel uh, I don't want you to name any names or anything. But but it's an area where. Uh, it's currently in the news because it just happened again yesterday, uh, a PED suspension for Starling Marte, one of the top players in the game. It, well, we don't know if he's one of the top players in the game. <laughs> that, that, that's the problem. Uh, but uh, do sports writers in general, the guys who are really there day in and day out, is it uh, chatter amongst yourselves? I don't mean once a guy gets suspended, but just on a just kind of – it came up, apparently, with, uh, I forget the young guy's name, uh, who came over with uh, Milwaukee. He's now with Milwaukee. He's off to a great start. Uh, oh, things. Things, yeah. yeah. And a couple of guys in the Cubs made these comments that, well, he must be on something if he's doing this. But, you know, You're lackey. Uh, lackey and uh, another one of the guys. Uh, do sports writers at all get into that or uh, in the current state? And then I have another question about this whole the hypocrisy of the PEDs, but... Uh, you know, there's not really as much of a speculation game as there used to be only because the league's done a pretty good job of, of catching people. So, uh, you know, 
is the science is going to beat the tests to some extent. There's always going to be some lab coming up with something new that's going to, uh, you know, help them get past it. But uh, they've done a pretty good job of, of weeding out a lot of the drugs, I think. Um, so, you know, if a guy comes out of nowhere to hit 50 home runs, is there going to be some chatter? Sure. Uh, you know, the Brady Anderson syndrome. Uh, yeah, of course, there's going to be some chatter about it. But, you know, a guy like Eric Thames, he went to Korea, was hitting 40-something home runs over there. You know, maybe maybe he learned how to lay off those sliders he used to swing at all the time. I, I, I'm not going to – look, all these guys get tested. So I can't sit here and say, well, he must be doing something because I don't have that proof. And I, of course, have the, you know, the level of, of responsibility of I can't just throw <laughs> an accusation out at somebody if I don't have proof about it. You know, I like when people always say – uh, you know, well, you guys didn't care. You let everybody, you know, you just let them all do whatever they want. It's like, I, I promise you, if I knew for a fact that a guy was using steroids or some type of form of sanitation drugs, I'd have written about it because that would have been really good for my career. So, um, you know, uh, but you can't just wildly throw out accusations because that's irresponsible and you get sued over that kind of thing. Right. Was the, those writers from uh, an hour, the guys from San Francisco? Oh, the Game of Shadows guys. Yeah. I don't think they would have written that book or written everything they wrote in the San Francisco papers if they didn't. Yeah, but that's what, that's what uh, I was not quite understanding what you said before then, uh, as far as uh, having that evidence that uh, they, but the evidence was out there. Well, look, they, they wrote what they wrote. Yeah. Bonds didn't sue them. He didn't win a lawsuit against them. He didn't, you know, so he can deny all he wants. And there's no failed tests. You know, the one thing that was tricky about that era was before 2003, they weren't testing. So, you know, you couldn't prove a guy was doing it because there was no test to prove it. There was, you know, now Bonds can say, look, I played for four years under the testing rules and never got suspended. And that's true. So, you know, he can say for those four years, I was clean. That's up to people to judge. But, you know, those guys, those guys, especially writing for a major newspaper, they, they had to, you know, they had to. Their editors wouldn't have let them write that stuff if they didn't uh, have the goods. Looking forward, uh, with the writers, new writers coming in, is that TV gear going to be further in, in the background, which will open the door for the Bonds and the Clemens and those guys? It might. Uh, I was a first-time voter last year. I voted for Bonds and Clemens. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, part of my, my rationale on that was I think there were a lot, guy, a lot of guys playing against them who were doing it also, who weren't out, you know, outed as users, didn't test positive, weren't suspended. The Bonds and Clemens were never suspended. Um, I just think just because you were reportedly users or proven to be users, it doesn't mean you weren't playing against other guys who were using And I don't know the answers to those things. So I'm sure there are guys in the Hall of Fame who used already. So I just, I can't. I can't be judge and jury on this one. I look at it as who are the best players of their generation. And if the Hall of Fame wants to put an exhibit out there and says, this is the steroid era, these are, these are the facts, these are the guys who were accused, this is the blah, 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 whatever, to in, you know, inform and educate people about it, I'm all in favor of it. The Hall of Fame is a museum first. Uh, but I don't think you can tell the story of Major League Baseball and the best players in the history of the game without including Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds. It's, you know, Barry Bonds is the best hitter I've ever seen, and Roger Clemens is probably maybe the third best pitcher I've ever seen. They're, uh, they're Hall of Fame players, and I think, uh, you know, to me, I, I'm going to continue to vote for them. Who's the best ball player you've ever seen? Bonds, probably. Uh, just all-around game. I mean, in addition to being a Yankee fan, I have a little dirty little secret of also being a San Francisco Giants fan. Uh, my, dad, my, dad moved to, my dad moved to San Francisco when I was in like eighth grade, and I would never rooted for a National League team. So when I go out and visit him, we go to Candlestick, and I love Will Clark, and so I, I became a Giants fan as well. Um, and I remember finding out that Barry Bonds had signed with the Giants when I was in Boston. I went down to the corner store to buy a soda or something, and I saw in the Boston Globe, Giant signed Barry Bonds because that's how he learned things in 1992. Uh, and so, you know, the best player in baseball just signed with a team that I root for. And I just remember pre-steroids Bonds when he was a gold glove outfielder who stole 40 bases a year, was the epitome of a five-tool player. Him and Griffey were the two best players I'd ever seen. Um, I probably put Bonds over Griffey just because I was a fan of his. But 
the two of them were hands down the best all-around baseball players I'd ever seen. And, you know, Jeter is in the conversation. He just didn't have the power those guys had, even in their, you know, Griffey and his whole career. Bonds, even if you look at what he used to do before 99 when he was old, old accounts are, that's when he started using. Even if you look at the first 13 years of his career, he had great power then too. So uh, I would put those two as my, as my top two. Who was your father? Who did your father think was the best player in baseball? Uh, he'd say Mantle or Mays. He'd probably go with Mantle because he was a Yankee fan, but one of those two for sure. <laughs> yeah. Willie Mays showed up at the writer's dinner one of the years that I emceed it, and I got to meet him, and that was uh, meeting Willie Mays and meeting Sandy Koufax were two of them. You get very jaded in this job where you don't really, you know, great, this guy's here, that guy's here. Meeting those two guys, I felt like a kid again. I felt, you know, I got to introduce my son who was – nine or ten at the time, to Sandy Koufax. And that was a surreal, I, mean, I, I worked with Mr. Koufax, how are you? You know, it was, that, was, that was pretty cool. That's Sandy Koufax, that's not, that's not something you get to do every day. That was pretty neat. How, how old is your son now? Uh, he'll be 12 in a couple weeks, or next week. And as a, that's a little different because his dad is a baseball writer, but d does your son, as a 12-year-old, and maybe his buddies, are they into baseball? Uh, my son is getting more into baseball. He, he certainly... He loves playing it. He always has since he started T-ball when he was four or five. Uh, but now he's actually starting to pay attention and watch it on TV a little bit and follow the game a little more. I think fantasy sports helps a lot of that. Video games help a lot of that. My son knows more about the NBA than I've ever known just because he plays it on Xbox. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I think just, you know, baseball cards and video games and fantasy sports, you learn more about the players in that aspect. Uh, but now I actually see him... I'll walk into the, you know, to the, you know, the den at night and he'll be sitting there watching the Yankee game, which uh, he hasn't necessarily done much before the last year or two. Can you ever, uh, I, I never thought about this before, but uh, can you go to a game? With, can you take your, your son to a game? Sure. I mean, you can. I, I don't do it often because on my off days, Yankee Stadium is maybe the last place I want to be. Right. Um, okay. But no, I, I make sure to take, I have two boys. They're, they're almost 12 and almost nine. Uh, and I, I, we try to take them to, you know, a couple games a year. Uh, just because I don't want to deprive him of the opportunity right. of going to games just because I don't want to go on my day off. Um, you know, I took him down to a Trenton game last year, oh, which was a lot of fun. fun yeah. uh, they, want, they, they both want to go to a Trenton game this year because they want to see Torres and Sheffield right. and some of these you know, baby bombers they keep reading about. So they want to go, they want to go see them. Uh, but, yeah, no, I, I can I, – I still – it's a different experience for me sitting in the stands than it used to be because I don't sit there and – cheer and go crazy but I enjoy watching them right. cheer and go crazy and it's, it's fun to see you know it was great to be able to teach them how to keep score for instance that was I don't think enough kids keep score anymore that's that's something every father should teach their kid is Absolutely. how to keep score at a baseball game yeah. I'm a firm believer of that <laughs> we're wrapping up but any other any last uh, bottom of the ninth questions Adam anything okay. Uh, Pedro's number one. I don't think that's even – I mean, he's – I used to enjoy when, when the Yankees would be playing the Red Sox and I saw that Pedro was lined up to pitch, I made sure to be working that day. That was – you knew you were watching something just really special. He was, he was so far and above everybody else. Um, and I'd, I'd probably put Maddox, too. Uh, he was – well, I shouldn't say that. Starting pitchers, I'd say Maddox, too. Rivera would be my number two guy behind Pedro in terms of just pitcher in general. Uh, just pure dominance, uh, but Maddox is probably number two. He was just he was he was a wizard. I mean, he was you know you're watching Pedro go out there with you know 95 and this filthy stuff and guys. I mean, Alfonso Soriano took the worst baseball swing I've ever seen in my life. The first time he ever saw a Pedro Martinez curveball, and you wondered how he was a professional baseball player. It looked like it looked like I would react to a Pedro Martinez curveball. He dove out of the way. The ball came in. He dove out of the way, and it. Strike one, and it was like he just dove out of the way of a called strike. It was amazing. Um, but in terms of starting pitchers, Pedro and Greg Maddox were probably uh, the two most fun guys. But Clemens was up there. He was in his heyday. Roger, you know, I, my first year covering the Yankees was his Cy Young year with the Yankees when he went twenty and three, and uh, he was he was pretty fun to watch back then. No, Randy. You know, Randy was really good. I, I got to watch him his two years in New York were the only years I got to watch him really up close. Um, I liked Randy more than most people did. I got along pretty well with him. 
uh, he didn't like most media folks. There were about three of us that he, that he actually talked to and got along with. And I found that if you caught him on the right day, uh, he would be really engaging in certain, certain topics and certain subjects. You walked over and said, has your back or has your shoulder? And he would just growl at you no matter who you were. And you just wanted to crawl up in a hole and die. But um, Randy in his heyday was, was pretty darn good. But he was just, just hard-throwing, you know, scary 6'10", arms and legs all over the place. There wasn't a craft to watching him pitch, whereas watching Pedro and Maddox, you felt like you were watching guys who had just mastered the art of pitching. Which is... Uh as the as the five foot six inch uh, proprietor of the clubhouse, uh, that that art is is fading away. And the irony is that the first two pitchers that you pick, your your, your two best pitchers that you've seen, right now a baseball scout basically if, if uh, has a directive that if the pitcher is not six three, they're not drafting this guy. So there's a good chance the two greatest pitchers you've ever seen, if they came along now, they're not sniffing Major League Baseball. Yeah, and the other guy who I always loved watching pitch was Mike Messina, who I'm also a big proponent of him for the Hall of Fame, and he was on my ballot this year. Uh, you know, again, a guy who I watched him from age 31 to 39 or 40. Um, I was there for his entire Yankee career for the first eight years of my time covering the team. So I watched him go from a guy with a 94-mile-an-hour fastball to a guy with an 88-mile-an-hour fastball, and yet... That last year, with the 88-mile-an-hour fastball, he won 20 games and had one of the better years of his career uh, without the stuff he had when he was younger in Baltimore when he strike out 15 guys you know, every third game because he knew what he was doing out there. And he had seven different pitches he could go to, and he knew on any given night. I learned more about pitching from Mike Messina, just BSing with him in his locker than anybody else because I would ask him about you know, why he threw this pitch there or why he's you know, decided to set up this guy this way or how he did it with this batter, um, why he didn't throw any curveballs this game or why, you know, whatever it was, and he would sort of take you through it. And, uh, you know, again, not, not a guy out there, not 6'3". I mean, he was six feet tall. He's not a tiny guy. Right. But he was not Randy Johnson. He was not Aroldis Chapman or CC Sabathia. He was a pretty modest... Nobody ever accused Mike Messina of doing steroids, but it's that. <laughs> <laughs> What's your sense about how the Yankees function post-George? The Suns, Levine, Cashman, how does it work or not work? I think it works. I think they're a little more responsible than George was. I don't think they have the, the – people like to kill Hal and say he doesn't care, he just wants to make money. I don't think that's true. I think he wants to win. I think he got a taste of that in 09. He, you know, he was running the show then. He, he understands that even if he's just worried about the business side of it, when the Yankees are good, that's better for business. Um, but at the same time, I think he's looked at a lot of the contracts, a lot of these big bloated contracts, and said, these don't work. This is not the way to, to run a business. This is not a way to, to build a team for sustained success. And he's seen the way other teams around the league have done it and said, we should be doing that too. And I think when you look at the plan they've had in the last three years, it, it's, a, it's a good way to run a team. I mean... Going out every four years and dropping a half a billion dollars on free agents is not the way, you know, free agents who are 31 years old is not the way to build a, a, a sustainable winning team. And I think they've seen enough teams. The other thing is, with the amount of money that's in the game now, the Yankees don't have the same financial advantage. They may spend more than most teams, but every team can spend. I mean, we were talking about the Marlins earlier. They're not a, a huge spending team. They spent $320 million on, on Stanton. These big free agents aren't getting to free agency as much. Now, when Machado and Harper get to free agency, the Yankees will have the money to be one of the three teams that can sign those guys. And that's where their financial flexibility will come into play. But it's, it's few and far between that you see a lot of these guys even get to free agency anymore. So you can't just rely on, well, we're going to have this hole. We'll just go get Jason Giambi and Messina and Matsui and Sheffield. I mean, think about the free agents they signed from 2001 to 2004, right? During that four-year stretch, they brought in Messina, Giambi, Matsui, Sheffield. They traded for A-Rod. Um, you know, most teams can't do that, and that's not the way to build a team. So I think Hal looks at it, where George used to say, well, damn it, we're in a slump, and we need a guy, go get me, you know, this old guy making a lot of money who's going to help us for the next six weeks. That's not how it does business, but I don't think that's a bad thing. And I think, you know, a lot of the fan base likes the whole blustery, fiery owner in, in what they had in George. But I don't know that 
I don't know that George would be able to operate that way in the current environment of baseball anyway. So uh, I think Hal, I, I like the way that Hal's approached this and that he's allowed Cashman to do what he's done. And now you look at some of these young guys starting to come up. And I think, you know, by 2019, this is going to be a pretty formidable team. And they will have built a new core of young players, brought in a couple of free agents. Like I said, I think Machado is a, a, as close to a lock as there's going to be. Because third <laughs> base is the one place they don't have the big prospect. Um, and they can, you know, bolster the, the roster with a free agent or two. And uh, I think 2019 is going to be a really good year to be a Yankee fan. Chloe, uh, on the topic of dropping a half billion dollars, I was going to ask what you think they're going to do between Harper or Machado, but who else do you think they're going to go after? Well, I think a lot of that is going to depend on which of the kids show themselves to be real. Mm -hmm. And I think the next, this season and next season, there are two objectives. Bird, Judge, Sanchez, Torres, I was going to say Caprillion, but he's out, uh, Sheffield, Adams, anybody who you've heard of who's a, you know, even Rutherford, Montgomery, Frazier, <laughs> see which of these kids are guys that they can count on as part of this next group. I hate using the word core because people say, oh, the core four. Where's the next core four? There is no more core four. They're not getting another core four. And there will never be another core four. That's, it's, it's a meteor. It's Haley's Comet. It's, you know, every 86 years, the team will have a core four. But, but which of these kids can they build around? And then once they have that figured out, so you've got Bird at first and Sanchez catching and Torres at second, let's say they sign Didi to play short, Machado fits in nicely at third, let's say Judge and Frazier, and let's say Rutherford. Maybe they don't need Bryce Harper. Maybe they do. Um, Pitching is going to be, to me, where they really need to figure it out the most. Uh, does Caprillion come back? Is Sheffield the real deal? Is Adams the real deal? Is Severino the real deal? Montgomery? They've got a lot of guys who could be, yeah. and I think however many of those show themselves to be legitimate will really determine, do they go out and try to sign, you know, do they bring Tanaka back if he opts out? Do they, you know, does Clayton Kershaw opt out of his deal, and if he does, can you bring him in? I don't, the Dodgers have more money than the Yankees, or as much anyway. They're not letting Kershaw, Clayton Kershaw will never pitch <laughs> anywhere else, at least not until he's about 40. Then the Yankees can bring him in. Uh, you know, but I think the pitching is really where they're going to have to, you know, sort of figure it out. Pitching costs more than everything else. So uh, I think they need at least two of these kids to show themselves to be, you don't need to be the ace, but be the number two and the number three in a rotation and then go figure it out from there. How long do you think it will be before they trade Ellsbury? <laughs> who are they trading him to? Exactly. Uh, I, he's got four years left on his contract, so he'll be there for probably, I would guess, about four years. I don't, I don't think he's going anywhere. I mean, maybe the last year of the contract, if it's one year left, and they eat half of it, and they, you know, they can send him back in. But chances are he's here for the, for the long haul. He's the only guy they have signed long term right now. You know, assuming that Sanaka opts out, which if he has a good year, I think he will. Gardner is this year and next year. Headley is this year and next year. Uh, I think that's it, right? They have no pitcher signed past this year, except for Chapman. So, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think Jacoby Ellsbury is going anywhere for. He's, he's a Yankee for a while. Imagine Pedro Martinez helping us win the Red Sox fans would love that, wouldn't they? Oh, great. Right? Well, it already happened once with Wade Boggs. That's true. Well, hey, Johnny Damon came over here and won a World Series. You know, it's, uh, I kind of looked at Fowler to the Cardinals in the same Johnny Damon mold of. You know, winning the world, helping break the curse in one city and then going to their rival and trying, you know, Cardinals obviously uh, have won fairly recently. But, you know, just going from one side of the rivalry to the other. What's one move that the Yankees are going to make this year that's going to surprise people? I think they're going to trade Pineda whether they're in it or not. Um, I think Cashman in his heart knows that they're not winning the World Series this year. Uh, I mean, it'll be tougher to do if they're in first place. But if they're just in that wild card mix, um, I think as long as he knows, well, I guess it wouldn't even matter if he doesn't think he's going to re-sign him. Although, look, they traded Chapman and re-signed him anyway. Uh, I think if Pineda's pitching well, that's going to be a valuable asset for a team. And Cashman saw what he, could, what he got for the guys last year. And if he says, look, even if I can get two prospects for Pineda, if we're not going to bring him back next year, why wouldn't 
we get rid of him and, and cash that chip in. So I think you're going to see him make some moves at the deadline, whether they're in it or not, because, you know, they're, they have a long-term plan. This is a, a, a long game they're playing versus, you know, trying to necessarily contend this year. So Pineda's my, my bold prediction if he gets moved before July 31st one way or another. Well, due to time constraints, we're going to have to wrap this up. It was a, a very interesting discussion. We purposely did not get into a lot of the items on the bucket list because you need to buy the book. Go buy the book. The New York Yankees fans bucket list, published by Triumph Books, written by Mark Feinsand, along with some great photos by Mark Feinsand. So thank you very much, Mark. Thank you.